Hi, this is Carol, and you're listening to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. Today, we are talking about Pinduoduo's social e-commerce model and its impact on agriculture. And we have with us Xin Lim, Senior Director of Corporate Development at Pinduoduo. Now, welcome onto the show, Xin Yi. Thanks for having me on your show, Carol. Xinyi, this is your first time on Analyze Asia, so I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. How did you start your career and what led you to work at Pinduoduo? Sure. So I actually started out of university at my very first job at GIC, which is uh, Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund. So I was covering internet and media for you know five, six years or so, and I was in both Singapore and New York. And I was familiar with um, Chinese e-commerce. I had co- covered Alibaba, for instance, as well as the Western internet giants, but I had never really heard of Pinduoduo. Right. So by the time PDD actually got started, I was already working in New York. So I was. Actually, pretty intrigued because I thought, you know, I'm the expert. I know enough about Chinese e-commerce. Who is there to to come along and try to, you know, upstage the incumbents? So I was actually really intrigued by Pinduoduo and the business model. And the more sort of reading that I did about it, you know, the more interested I was, and the more I realized I didn't quite understand or didn't quite know. And my take on sort of tech and the development of tech has been that actually a lot of things in internet space has already. Frog the U.S. right. So my take on the tech development scene is that for the internet space in China, a lot of the things happening there have already leapfrogged the U.S. So in terms of e-commerce and how it will evolve further down the road, I thought it would be a great learning opportunity to actually be part of an exciting, fast-growth company like PDD and see for myself, you know, what is the thing that is different about PDD's approach to e-commerce and how might that evolve over time. So I took、uh, that leap and I moved over to Shanghai in late 2018. That's really interesting. So you were on the investment side first, and then now you decide to join one of these companies. That really reminds me of. I'm not sure if you you know the story behind Joseph Tsai. He was also on the investment side, and then he started then work working for Alibaba, and then now of course he is the vice chairman of Alibaba Group, considered a co-founder and everything. So it's a I see a bit of similarity there. <laughs> Yeah, although I I definitely would be extremely honored if one day I reached you know the same level of achievement as Joe Tsai. Of course, of course.、And、what are some of the interesting career lessons that you can you know share with our audience? Well, I don't think I've had tumultuous or like a very challenging. I think in terms of my career so far, I've only ever worked for、uh, two companies. So the most of my working life, I was at GIC, right, which is a great place, a big platform to work for, and I was offered a lot of opportunities. And I think when it came to actually, you know, assessing or thinking about what else I wanted in my career, one thing that I was thinking about was, you know, drawing on kind of my investment background, you know. If you, as a person, you only have so much time, you only have you know th- these many years in your life. Effectively, your asset under management is your time, right? So, how do you invest your time to make sure that you build you know a best portfolio that gives you the best returns, right? So, in terms of what's in that portfolio, it should be skills that have longevity, right? That can actually deliver huge outsized returns. So, then thinking about what I had in that portfolio, it felt to me that it wasn't necessarily as diversified as I would like it to. Be. So I set out to actually just jot down, right, note down 
around, okay, who are the people that I think are in cool places now doing cool things, right? Who are the people that I aspire to be like? What are some of the things that I like to do? What are some of the things that I uh, hope to have the chance to do? And then how do I get there, right? So what are the skills that I need to acquire? So that's my, you know, general framework or philosophy for kind of thinking about career planning, not that I'm an expert at it. <laughs> Thank you. I do think that's great advice. And now let's come and talk about Pinduoduo. So it was about a month ago when Pinduoduo overtook JD.com as the second largest e-commerce platform in China by market cap. So first of all, congratulations to the company. Thanks. We don't actually focus so much on the market cap movements because, you know, we can't really keep track of it. One one day it'll be, you know, up massively, the next day it'll be down. And honestly, a lot of it is just swinging on sentiment and headlines, right? So for our company, the most of our focus is just kind of heads down, right? And how do we deliver the best value to our users? 100%. Now, you know, for those of us who keep a very close eye on China Tech, we have a pretty good understanding of the background of Pinduoduo. And because it did receive a lot of publicity, especially you know in 2018 when it IPO'd but just for our other listeners who are less familiar can you briefly introduce us to your company Pinduoduo and its mission and vision So PDD was founded in 2015. Our founder uh, is Colin Huang. He's an ex-Googler, and the founding team has actually been working together with him for you know over a decade, right? Despite the company being only four and a half years old. So Colin is a serial entrepreneur, and basically when he started the company, it was already sort of when people thought that e-commerce in China was already a more or less settled situation, right? People thought that well, there are already two very large players in the market. We've kind of been There, done that. We've seen it all. So his approach to developing Pinduoduo was actually quite differentiated. So our first incarnation was actually as Pinhaohuo. So we were a one P,、uh, meaning we take inventory of the goods, right? So first party business model, fresh produce focused、uh, e-commerce platform. And back in the day, right, we didn't even start out with an app, right? So it was actually very informal. It was mostly people communicating with their friends, with their network via WeChat. We really pushed the idea of a team purchase to help. Bootstrap our company and grow our user base. So without even spending on paid advertising, a lot of it was just organic growth, right? So it was just people, right, being incentivized to share the platform, to share the deals with their immediate social network, so that they themselves, as well as their friends who've joined in a team purchase, can all enjoy a better price. So through this process of a team purchase, we actually managed to grow our user base very rapidly, right? So it became viable. Viral phenomenon, and then gradually, as we cross say the 200 million annual active buyer mark, we started to invest in advertising. We started to invest in other tools to actually increase our user engagement. And now we're standing at 628 million annual active buyers, 487 million MAUs, and then over 1 trillion RMB of GMV. Right for the last 12 months,、um, ending in 31st March 2020. So. All of this in a short span of time really came about because there was a differentiated vision for the platform, right? And we set out to develop it in a different way than what we saw some of our predecessors、uh, go down the path of. So, for one, our name, right, Pin Duo Duo. So, Pin actually means to come together, right? And Duo, the first Duo is referring to more savings. The second Duo is referring to more fun. So, when we actually think about our value proposition to our users, it's anchored. 
around more savings, right, being value for money. So when Colin wrote out in his uh, shareholders letter when we IPO'd, he had this vision or described us as Costco meets Disney, right? So the more savings is what the the Costco bit kind of relates to. Of course, people will say like, hey, but there's a difference in business model. You know, one's physical, one's online entirely. But the general gist of it, right, is that actually we can deliver value for money goods to consumers and value for money goods is a universal need, right? Whether you're living in Shanghai or you're living in a fifth tier city, right? Everybody wants to save some money, right? Especially in these times, I think. Now, the second door relates to more fun, right? So that's the Disney component. And that really is uh, drawing upon, as I mentioned earlier, our roots, right? With the social network helping us grow to the company that we are today. We know that actually in a typical shopping or uh, kind of offline commerce uh, setting, you typically have people who are maybe your friends and family involved in that browsing, discovery, purchasing journey as well, right? It's not necessarily as solitary as what conventional e-commerce has been, which is you go in, you get to the search bar and then you type in some keywords, you narrow down and then you just pick a particular uh, SKU. On our platform, what we're more anchored around is a social and interactive experience. So when you open up the app, the first thing that you see is actually a personalized feed. So this is something that is akin to your Facebook or Instagram feed, where based on your browsing behavior, based on the things that you've been looking at, as well as the things that your friends have been looking at, where it is relevant, we're actually using the information of what your friends are looking at, what your friends are buying to also make recommendations to you. And this very much mirrors the offline experience where, for instance, you and your friend may be shopping at a mall, right? And she goes off on one side, you go off on one side of the store and she finds a dress that you think, wow, that looks really great. And that's a similar kind of discovery process that we're trying to encourage, except in a digital space. And on our platform, we also develop games, for instance, so when you're just you know feeling a bit bored, you have a little bit of time, what you can do is you can still fire up the PDD app and you know that there will always be interesting things to engage you and for you to discover. Or you could just play a game, right? And while you're playing the game, we'll also find ways to try and maybe you know bring you back to a product or maybe help you discover something that you might be interested to buy. So it's a very seamless integration of shopping and entertainment. And I think that is something that has been very appealing, which is why we've managed to grow our user base to encompass not just people in the lower tier cities, but people in the first and second tier cities as well, who contributed to about 45% of our GMV in the month of November 2019. Wow. So you already you know, started to explain to us what it really means when um, people brand Pindodo as a um, quote-unquote social e-commerce company, right? Can you talk about uh, in detail some of the features of social shopping that has been introduced by Pinduoduo? I know you mentioned just a few, but um, can you talk a little bit more about, for example, team purchase or you know price chop and the different programs that are out there? So one thing central to our platform is the concept of a team purchase. So when we first started as Pinhao Huo and we were trying to bootstrap our, ourselves to a larger user base, we had to set the team size that was required for a team purchase to be successful as a fairly large number. So imagine you know, 20 people and then over time it came down to maybe 10, etc. And so as we got larger, that actually meant that you didn't really have to set as large a team size requirement because if you think about it in the 
span of a 24 hour window, it's uh, much more easier for you to form, say, five teams of two versus insisting on one team of 10 forming successfully, right? So as the merchants saw how the platform was growing and the velocity of all the traffic that was happening on the platform, they also lowered down the requirements. So today for a team purchase to be successful on our platform, you just need two people to come together. And we do also have a function where if, uh, for instance, it's a popular item, there are other people that are also trying to form teams to buy this thing, you could also just join in with a stranger, right? So on our platform, most of the transactions, like the vast majority of it, team purchases. And the reason for that is, as I mentioned earlier, team purchases get you a lower price. So the merchant is the one who sets the price. They might say, for instance, this dress, the RRP is uh, 50 RMB. So the solo purchase price is maybe 50 RMB. They put that down. And then the team purchase price, maybe it's, uh, say, 45 RMB. And so most people, when presented with the choice of paying either 45 or 50, they might go with the 45 RMB option. Right. And as proven on our site, because there's so many people visiting, so many people coming to the platform, the odds of you actually being successful in forming that team are pretty high. So that team purchase function, I think as we continue to evolve, we do see people opting sometimes to share things with their friends. Sometimes they just join in with a stranger. So what we try to do is we just encourage users right through things that we can develop on the app. For instance, in our shopping festivals, there might be um, extra coupons that you can only unlock if you send it along to a friend, if you share it to WeChat, etc. So in that way, we still encourage our users to generate a fair amount of uh, kind of sharing activity and that data is able to help guide us, right? Because then we, we can build out our own proprietary social graph and know that, hey, user A relates to user B as well as user C. The friends, they communicate with each other, they've shared things with each other, but the direction of influence might be that users C is the most influential out of the three, right? And user C always sends maybe food recommendations to user A, whom user A always accepts. But for some reason, user C also knows not to bother with maybe the food recommendations to user B, but sends along apparel recommendations, which user B clicks on once in a while. Right. And then user A and B in comparison may be a little bit more passive, they're not as active in terms of sharing links with their friends. But this information allows us to then know that actually if I can mobilize user C, if I can put certain things in front of user C, there's a very high chance that this product is going to then make its way on to user A or user B, depending on the category. And that is also what helps us refine our recommendation algorithm over time. So the social commerce aspect, I think, speaks to a smarter way right, of trying to help people find things that they would be interested in, even before they've verbalized or even knew themselves explicitly that, yes, this is the thing that I've been looking for, or this is a thing that I'm interested in. And then at the same time, it also plays into that human desire to connect to actually, you know, share ideas, share things with friends, bring a smile to people's faces. So I think this is a very core component of that social commerce aspect. And I think another, you know, piece of it that I mentioned earlier is the gamification. So sometimes, you know, when you're uh, just feeling a little bit bored, you have some time to kill, you might choose to come onto our platform and play a game. 
So the variety of games are uh, is it's huge, right? So one thing you mentioned earlier is the price chop. So that was something that we came up with pretty much at the beginning when we first launched the app. And the notion of the price chop is in effect it is helping us acquire users for a very low cost because the user who begins or initiates the price chop might pick, for instance, say a toaster, right? And that toaster has a certain dollar value that we've assigned to it, and so there's a certain difficulty level. Associated with, you know, being able to unlock that toaster for free. So let's say Carol wants a toaster, and then she sends it on to her friends, right? So for you, as you send it on, each individual friend who clicks on that link will help you shave off a little bit of that toaster's price. So maybe the starting price was 50 RMB, and then as I click on it, right, I shaved off one RMB off off of it, and then so on and so forth. When you reach maybe say the 20th user or the 30th user. They're maybe only shaving off like 30 cents or 10 cents, right? So it gets progressively harder, but at the same time, it plays into human psychology, right? Because if you've you know ever played a game or been stuck in on some addictive drama, you've already invested so much effort, you just kind of want to complete it. You want to see it to its end. So that actually pushes the users to then go on and share it with even more people, right? So that they can get to the final end where uh, the price goes down to zero and they're able to enjoy that product for free. So it's proven to be a very successful、uh, user acquisition tactic on our platform, but we know that not everybody wants to play that game, right? So we've developed different types of games that people can play. So there's something that's quite similar to Candy Crush, for instance, right? If people prefer more like puzzle solving, more interactive kind of games, there's also simpler games like Dodo Orchard, where it's effectively a digitized loyalty card if you think about it. So as you browse on the platform, as you make purchases. You get rewarded with water droplets that you can then use to water a digital tree that you would have chosen. It may have been an apple tree, may have been an orange tree, a walnut tree, etc. I've got a mango tree going, and you know I'm just a couple more rounds away, right, from actually unlocking the prize, which in this case is a box of fruit that is purchased by PDD and will be sent to the user for free. So this is something that you know is a nice surprise for the user, but at the same time, it is also a way of us just rewarding them for their loyalty, incentivizing them to keep coming back, and that logic also plays out for other things that we have on the platform, like for instance with the daily check-in as well. We're just trying to build up that habit of people firing up the app every day, coming onto Pinduoduo, looking to see what sort of deals there are, what sort of things their friends may have bought recently, what new things are being recommended, etc. So I think that social commerce aspect is very much anchored around human interaction as well as entertainment. It's interesting to hear you talk about these different features and games because, funny enough, right now, recently, because of、um, you know how it's. June eighteenth, the six one eight shopping festival is kind of going on, and I've been lured to start playing games on the Taobao app actually. And a lot of the features that you just described, it seems like the other platforms have also, you know, either copied or developed similar features. Like、uh, there are, you know, on the Taobao app, you can play a game similar to Candy Crush. You can also grow your farm with all sorts of different fruits and even seafood that are being grown in there.、So 
So it seems like this is not no longer a, a unique advantage, I would say, to Pinduoduo. However, there is a one unique connection which you mentioned earlier, which is Pinduoduo's connection with WeChat, right? I believe Pinduoduo is backed by Tencent, and you did mention that WeChat also has a role to play in the entire user purchase or user acquisition journey. Is that right? So WeChat or Tencent is actually one of our largest shareholders. So they own、uh, just over seventeen percent of our company, and they've been very supportive of us back when, even when we were still a private company. And in terms of that relationship, we don't actually get extra data or special treatment from WeChat specifically, right? So what we're able to do is we built out our own proprietary social graph that I talked to you about earlier, and that really just it goes on the WeChat rails, right? So you can think about WeChat as being kind of like the highway that ninety、uh, plus percent of the Chinese population uses, right, to just communicate with each other. So it's entirely up to the users to decide. What they want to send traveling down that highway, right, and where they want to drive to. So you can share Taobao links, for instance, on WeChat to your friends as well, right? But it would be a scrambled product link on our platform. If you're sending a PDD SKU product information, you're sending that listing and sharing with a friend. It's a much more seamless integration, right? So that's something that I think we continue to benefit from. But in general, we've seen actually more traffic growing on our app itself. Majority of our traffic and transactions happen on our app right now, and most of the time we see. A mix as well between the users. Sometimes maybe making purchases or browsing using the mini program. Maybe a friend or you know it's your mom. She sent you a link and you just click on it. It opens up inside the mini program and you're in a rush. And so you just click,、uh, you know, okay, fine, pay for it because she wants this thing. And then you're out. But then maybe in the evening, as you're maybe just browsing, you're traveling on your way home, you might fire up the app. Right, and then you might sort of get stuck in for a longer browsing session where you're also maybe watching a live stream or you're playing a game, etc. So the functionalities are much better on the app itself, and so we've seen people progressively move on to、uh, using the app more once they become a more regular user. But I think we've had a great relationship with Tencent. They continue to be very supportive of us, and at the senior management level, they do、uh, kind of talk and share ideas about trends that they're seeing. In the industry, so we've been very fortunate to have、uh, the support from Tencent. And the next question is something that I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on. What do you think are some of the misconceptions from the Western world, which you know Pinduoduo has been you know labeled by or misunderstood as、um, as a company? Yeah, I think one common misperception is that PDD only serves people in the lower tier cities, and that we're a platform that only sells cheap things, right? So I think, as I mentioned earlier, we already have 45% of our GMV in November 2019 coming from people in the first and second tier cities. So when we look at our user distribution, it actually pretty much mirrors the population distribution of China, which is that yes, majority of people do live. In the lower tier cities, but these are also people who are coming into more disposable income. These are also people who are looking for various forms of a consumption upgrade. Not necessarily being very flashy and just splashing out on, say, a big brand name item, but maybe looking to upgrade their lives in little ways, right? So, for instance, if I'm selling, say, a robot vacuum cleaner that actually has functionalities pretty comparable to a typical branded SKU. 
then if you're able to enjoy that amount of functionality at a fraction of the price, that is a consumption upgrade as well because you've just made something more accessible to a wider pool of people. So someone who may not have seen themselves being in that target audience or being in the market for a robot vacuum cleaner after coming onto our platform and seeing what's available might then realize that like, hey, actually, you know, I could potentially buy one of these things for just a little bit more than a handheld vacuum cleaner. So why not give it a shot? So when we try to explain to people what are the things available on the PDD platform, I mentioned at the beginning that, you know, pin duo it's together, more savings, more fun. The savings or the value for money aspect, sometimes people conflate that with just being cheap, but cheap is actually an absolute term, right? Whereas value for money is a relative concept. So if you're buying something that costs you 500 RMB, nobody would really say that that's a cheap product, right? Because that's still 500 RMB. But if this particular product, you know, was actually something that you felt is value for money relative to the functionality, relative to the quality of this product, then you could still say that this is a value for money good. So I think this is something that we've also tried to give a little bit more color on when we speak to media as well as investors, because in terms of the things that are sold on our platform, uh, the two most common categories are apparel as well as fast moving consumer goods. But even within that, right, there's also a wide range of things, right? You could be buying, you know, pretty basic white label t-shirt or unbranded apparel, but you might also be a person who is willing to buy, say, SK2, right, or La Mer, or branded skincare product. So everyone has different preferences across different categories. And that is something that applies to every user, right, regardless of which city that you live in, right? People just have certain things that they're inclined to maybe pay a bit more for quality. And then there may be some other categories or some things where they don't necessarily prioritize it as much. So we've actually been actively trying to build out our PDD Global as well as our branded goods section on the platform as well. We're not going to create a standalone kind of like Tmall-like experience because we think it's actually much easier when it's just all integrated into a single app. You don't really have to you know, manage traffic or divert it to a separate app. And on our platform, we are also trying to, through some of our campaigns, encourage people to take a look right at the higher end or you know slightly different categories of products. So if you're somebody who's just used to coming here and buying fruit well you know you might get a coupon this 618 that says I'll get 5 RMB off your next 80 RMB purchase right or something like that so something that will be an invitation that nudges you to take a look at things that are perhaps a higher price point or maybe just in a different category that you're not used to browsing and then on the IP protection front one thing that people also have a misconception on is that okay perhaps the things on PDD are so cheap because there are fake goods right or the counter So this is actually something that we take very seriously and have been working continuously on. So we were the first in the industry to roll out a 10 times penalty program. So what that actually means is that if, for instance, a merchant claims to be selling Adidas shoes, right, actually turns out those shoes, you know, they say Abibas or whatever it is when the consumer gets it, the consumer lodges a complaint. What we'll do is that the merchant gets a fine of 10 times, not just on that single pair of shoes, but for the entire batch of shoes that he may have 
have been selling, say, in the past one month right, or two weeks, etc. So this is actually a very stiff penalty for any merchant to have to face. And therefore, it would act as a deterrent for merchants who think, you know, maybe PDD is going to be more lax or PDD doesn't have the measures to deal with this. And we routinely get merchants who protest at our headquarters because of that, right, because they were slammed with a penalty. And I think as we continue to build out our IP protection program, we're also working with brands. So for instance, we have a mini program that we created together with some brands like say with Meet Johnson, where consumers can also verify the authenticity of the products. So this is something that people may not know about Pinduoduo. Well, you know what? I think some of these misconceptions are not just misconceptions that the Western audience might have, but a lot of the Chinese users who are not yet Pinduoduo users have probably similar misconceptions. Like I myself, I must admit, I have never used Pinduoduo before until when I was prepping for this interview and download the app and start using it and realized how easy it is for me to actually want to purchase a product. And in fact, I, I did today. I purchased a headband because it was so ridiculously cheap that the price was that was offered it was about 342 3 rmb and 42 cents is how much i paid which is you know less than a dollar and that includes shipping but i can see how you know as a user i start out by just purchasing smaller ticket items and then as i use the app more and more i'm going to start purchasing larger and larger ticket and also more in quantity as well so I, I definitely see see what you're talking about. And I do see Apple products, Dior, SK2, all of these products being offered in the global product section as well. Yeah, it's definitely a gradual process for the consumer to build confidence, right? So many people may start off like you and buy something that is a relatively low ASP product, right? But then gradually over time, you know, as they accumulate good shopping experiences and also as our platform gets to know your preferences better, then you're able to migrate or maybe try to explore buying things in, say, a different category, right? Or maybe purchasing things that are of a higher ticket price. That's right. And you probably enjoy a really good relationship where there are probably a lot of actual manufacturers who are not middlemen that are on your platform. That is how you're able to offer such great prices, right? Yeah, that's actually a great point. And I think that's also something you know to address, right, in relation to people's question of just how is it that things can be so affordable on Pinduoduo. So from our perspective, we always felt that actually when you look at the conventional manufacturing supply chain, it's still very much operating like as if most of retail had never seen e-commerce even pop up before, right? So it's still happening as if there are certain seasons, there are fixed cycles for things to be made or designed, and then the consumers just have to deal with whatever comes down the pipe. Whereas we know that actually in a digital era, especially with the newer generation of consumers who are coming of age, they're used to having everything be very responsive, right? And be very dynamic and on the go. So when you think about the manufacturing process, process. What we've been trying to do with the manufacturers is through our consumer to manufacturer initiative, give them some insights about what consumers are interested in. Because on PDD, when you have people forming team purchases, that actually aggregates a large amount of volumes for the merchant, right? In a short period of time of just 24 hours, they're getting a lot of orders because each individual person who is placing an order is also going out and sending that link to their friends and trying to invite a second person to 
to form that team with them. So this means that actually in a 24-hour window, you're not just getting one order and then maybe, you know, who knows when you'll get the next order. You're actually getting it in pretty tight succession. So for the users, right, if I would have gone off and bought a headband from a different merchant, say next week, and then you bought your headband from your merchant just yesterday, if you had sent me the link, I might have taken a look at it and said, hey, you know, I like that too. It's a great design, but maybe I'll, I'll get the blue one instead. So then two of us make that purchase together. We both pay a lower price. But what happens is that merchant whom you bought your headband from would actually have, you know, two transactions, right? So I'm also giving that merchant my business instead of maybe somebody else whom I might have gone to say next week. So this actually gives the merchant much greater visibility into the order volumes that they're going to get in a given month. And that also allows them to optimize their manufacturing process. So certain things like, for instance, if they know that they're, they're now operating with so much more scale, they could parlay it upstream and get better negotiations, better deals from their suppliers. So they could lower the cost of manufacturing or they could actually change some of their manufacturing processes, right? Maybe they realize that, hey, actually 80% of my orders on PD are all coming to this one SKU. So this is my hit SKU. Maybe I should just uh, redesign or retool some of my manufacturing lines and really focus on this SKU. And then some of the other SKUs that just aren't doing so well, I don't really need to spend so much money importing the materials to design this or make this, right? I can actually reduce that. And so as that flywheel turns, more savings are generated, which can be passed on to the consumer. And the merchant is happy, right, to make that deal because even if they're offering it at a price that's lower than what they might offer it elsewhere, they know that at the end of the day, because there's so much in the volumes that are coming through, that when it gets to, say, the net profit level, they're definitely better off in terms of the absolute dollars, right, that they're making in terms of net profit. So this is why they're willing to continue to pass on those savings. And that's also why the consumers can see such attractive prices on our platform. All right. And now let's also talk about Pindodo and its impact on agriculture. So how does Pindodo contribute to the agriculture sector in China? So Pindodo actually has a very interesting origin story in agriculture or fresh produce. So in 2015, when we first started, we were Pinhaohuo. Pinhaohuo actually was a first-party business model that focused just on fresh produce. And the focus on fresh produce was also deliberate. Because in 2015, most of the major e-commerce platforms were already in full flight, right? They were pretty mature. You could buy all kinds of stuff there. But fresh produce was and still continues to be a category that has a very low penetration online. So people are perfectly fine, you know, spending 8,000 RMB buying TVs that they've never seen and just clicking buy online. But when it comes to maybe 8 RMB for some apples or whatever it is, they still prefer to go to the corner store or the fruit store and just kind of pick and choose what they want. So fresh produce was something that our founding team felt, okay, there's definitely some potential for further online penetration in this space. At the same time, the ticket price is also relatively low, right? So trying to persuade you to part with 8 RMB is going to be an easier sell than trying to get you to part with 800 or 8,000 RMB. And trying to get people to come on board would also be easier because once they have a positive experience, the repeat purchase frequency 
frequency is actually extremely high. So this was what set the wheels in motion for our roots in fresh produce. So we've had that connection with fresh produce suppliers, with farmers since the beginning of our founding. And we've continued to ramp that up even as we got to our current scale today. So although fresh produce is not the largest category on our platform, it is one of the more significant ones. So in 2019, we actually saw 136 billion RMB worth of agricultural produce in GMV being generated on our platform. So this was something that puts us very well in either you know first or maybe second position in terms of online platforms for fresh produce sales. And this is something that we think there's still many, many legs to go. In terms of the penetration level, it's fairly low. I think in terms of what more can be done to digitize agriculture, there's also a lot more that can be done. So we are looking at, for instance, how we can partner with the local government, as well as the farmers and agronomic research institutes to develop maybe next generation farms, right? So we worked with the Junnan provincial government starting in middle of last year to launch pilot farms across different counties in Yunnan. We've got the support of the Yunnan Academy of Agricultural Sciences and we've helped put together pilots where uh, the farmers are maybe reorganized into a co-op. So touching upon different types of produce, be it coffee beans or citrus or yakon or fungus, there's all kinds of produce out there. But the common ingredient is that by having the farmers work together as part of a co-op by engineering injecting maybe agronomic knowledge from the agricultural research institutes and then by injecting the e-commerce element on our side giving them the training giving them a better sense of actually what it is that the market wants and how they can get their products ready to be sold to consumers all over China it's an entire package that we're working on and we're still just at the very early stages of that but so far I think we've been pretty heartened by it and we are seeing growing interest as well from both government in other parts of China, as well as maybe some other enterprises, right, who are also thinking about how digital companies, e-commerce companies can help to transform agriculture. I think for us, apart from the total farms, one thing that we've also seen is that for the consumers on our platform, sometimes they also feel like they want to contribute back, right? And so one thing we do is we make it quite easy for them as well. So when you're playing the total orchard game, for instance, the fruits that we are sourcing that we actually give out for free to the consumer, those are sourced from poverty-stricken counties, right? So these are the counties that are designated at a national level as being below the poverty line in need of extra help. So we try to source the fresh produce from there. And then when it comes to giving exposure or helping the farmers who have maybe, you know, stagnant pools of supplies or are really in need of getting greater exposure for their goods, we also offer gateways or entry points so that the consumer, when they're playing the game, right in between they also see uh, a little pop-up right or they'll see a little button like oh okay today's right today's special feature for the farming produce right here's uh, maybe farmer joe with his potatoes or whatever it may be can you elaborate a little bit more on the dodo farm project especially in Yunnan, and what are some of the key learnings there sure so we've invested 100 million over the course of 2019 to build uh, co-op models right across these different farms in Yunnan. so 
in Yunnan, we actually have a partnership with the provincial government as well as the Yunnan Academy of Agricultural Sciences. So what we're doing there is we have a specific uh, model for each different pilot project. So for instance, if it's a farm dealing with, say, citrus, we have brought in agronomic experts who are recommending that actually to increase the yield for these farmers, one thing that is lacking is irrigation. So if there were a more reliable irrigation system, if that was actually in place, that would greatly improve the livelihoods of these farmers. So the challenge was that for these farmers with their own individual fragmented smallholding plots, it was not economically feasible for them to individually implement irrigation, right? So for them, they had to be organized into a co-op with one contiguous plot of land for that irrigation project to be brought in, right? For it to really make sense. So this was where we came in with some starter funds. We worked with the local government to persuade the villagers to band together and form that co-op. And then the agronomic experts were the ones who were on site to teach them, okay, these are the benefits of this irrigation system. This is how you actually use it on a daily basis. And at the same time, our staff are also providing some training in terms of e-commerce, right? What does it take to run an e-commerce store? What do people want to know when they're considering maybe buying your oranges, for instance? So all these pieces are the common ingredients, I would say, farm project. So in some cases, we might be trying to roll out, say, standardization for the product, right? Trying to build a brand for that particular agricultural good. In some cases, we may be working with the farmers and the agronomic institute to introduce, say, a different variety of what is being grown because we see from the data on our platform that there's much greater demand for this particular variety over what it is that maybe the farmers have been farming for 10, 20 years. We know we can't really not talk about COVID-19 and its impact to the different industries. So given the current COVID-19 pandemic situation, what has been uh, Pindodo's response and what have you done to you know help these farmers to tide over this tough period? Yeah, so I think with COVID-19, it was really a perfect storm in that it unfolded right around the Chinese New Year period. So this was when a lot of people were back in their villages, right? Logistics was actually impacted quite severely, uh, especially with the travel restrictions that came on right after. So this meant that not only just in terms of general merchandise, right? Apparel or like books or whatever being disrupted in terms of delivery, it was especially impactful for the farmers because for agricultural produce, you actually have a certain shelf life, right? So if you can't sell your apples, you can't sell your oranges within a certain time frame, then all of your hard work for the past season is going to go to waste. So one thing that we did was that we set up a special channel on our app to help the farmers, basically. And that channel allowed the farmers to actually showcase the products that they had that may have sitting in excess and being unable to reach the end consumer. Because most of the time in China till today, the agricultural goods are usually picked up by, say, a wholesaler who maybe drives around and picks up from the different counties, etc., offers them a price, it goes up to the next level, etc., and changes more hands until it reaches the consumer in the supermarket. So when the travel restrictions were in place, that actually meant that a lot of this typical procurement activity was disrupted, and the farmers were just panicking because most of them still relied on these offline channels uh, for offtake, right? So they had no idea how to then find a consumer without these middlemen being in place. 
So we had a channel whereby the farmers could submit the information about their crops, right, about the quantity that they were sitting on, take some pictures, send it along to our team that worked around the clock to basically put together a listing in a very expedited manner. So this allowed the users on our platform who were also stuck at home and trying to maybe buy fresh produce online for perhaps the first time, discover products that they found like, oh, okay, actually it's really affordable and it's helping a farmer in need. So this matching of supply with demand was something that we played an active role in. In addition to that, we also had launched our live streaming feature on our platform in late January. So this was also just very timely because with a lot of the people now stuck at home, consumers actually do have more time and more interest to actually explore live streaming as a means of just consuming information, but also getting entertainment out of it at the same time. And live streaming has been particularly powerful in replicating some of that offline connection that you might have had with, say, your local vegetable seller or you know your local service provider in that you are now able to see the product perhaps at its source. The farmer is able to do a live stream and show to you, okay, these are where you know the pineapples are coming from, right? This is how I tend to my crops, etc. And we also roped in community leaders. So these were county or mayors, county level leaders or mayors who would be helping to sell the specialty produce in their hometowns. And this helped us move massive volume of agricultural produce in a short time. So usually when I share the numbers to people, they almost just like take a they, they have a double take. So we've held over 100 live streaming sessions in conjunction with over 20 provinces in China so far. And in aggregate, these webcasts or live streaming, they have all sold over 350,000 metric tons of agricultural goods. So in a very short span of time, leveraging the power of live streaming, leveraging the power of e-commerce, we've managed to help the farmers move a lot of the produce that otherwise would have just gone to waste. And at the same time, for the farmers, after they finish selling the harvest, the next thing they usually look to is, okay, how do I maybe get ready for the next planting season? So again, the access to inputs was impacted by COVID-19. And this was an area where we stepped in and also worked with some of the leading agricultural input brands to offer the products online. So you could also, through PDD, right, after you're done watching a live stream about fruit, etc., you could then place an order for seeds or fertilizer or say for a microtiller or whatever it may be and this would be sent to you. So we had this partnership with the local government as well as the logistics players in terms of having these green lanes for the logistics of these agricultural inputs to be expedited and sent through to the farmers. So this is a way of helping to try to safeguard their productivity and ensure that you know the next planting season wouldn't be too affected by the outbreak of COVID-19. These are ama- amazing initiatives that uh, Pingdodo has done because I don't know if, you know, everyone listening understands the situation of you know agriculture and, and farming in China like in the US where you have you know very few farmers sitting on hundreds of acres of plots of land in China there are a lot of these just small farmers with very small amount of plots of land and this is where all of their income comes from and so when covid hit it was a really dire situation for a lot of people who weren't um, coming from a wealthy background to begin with you know so Really, it is um, amazing what you guys have done. Now, we talked a lot about what Pindodo has done in the past. What are some of the key trends that you see in the future for social commerce? And of course, does that 
extend beyond just um, agriculture for Pinduoduo? Sure. So I think social commerce is very much at the core of everything that we do on our platform. So it's um, not just tied to agriculture or a given category. It's really more about that shopping experience and how we inject, you know, that sense of interactivity and that sense of also trust and community in that entire shopping process. So what we've seen is that, you know, other players uh, elsewhere in the world, for instance, Facebook, they recently came out and also said, yeah, sure, we'll enable shops right to also have commerce features uh, on our platform so finally right moving into integrating shopping and social but we have to see kind of how they actually implement it I think on Instagram right people are also used to seeing a lot of these uh, perhaps direct-to-consumer brands being featured in their feeds etc or being shared by their friends so what PDD is doing has actually been I think one step beyond that in that from day one we've integrated that whole process of maybe your friend making a recommendation and sharing it to you in our shopping flow, right? So a lot of it is capturing some of the discovery that you might otherwise not have been able to make online as you might uh, offline. So I think this is a bigger trend that will continue, right? Capturing that sense of discovery, of finding things that you like, that you might not have had a very uh, you know, precise idea of knowing previously. And then also that sense of community. So with live streaming, for instance, what we see is that you know for certain categories of goods that people may be less familiar with buying online having that interaction with the storekeeper is a way to actually build trust right it's a way for them to explain to you right okay these are how this is how i'm sourcing the products right and if it's not just uh say agriculture right it might be for instance say jewelry right i've seen a lot of jewelry live streams on our platform where you know there's like millions of people all simultaneously watching there's this uh, merchant who's explaining and you know shining a light on on the jewels or the accessories and explaining like okay you know for this bracelet right these are the materials that are being used etc and like okay I just got an order in uh, for you know so and so all right so and so thank you for your order I am packing your order right now you know I'm I'm writing your name on this package so it's it's really sort of taking the consumer behind the scenes almost right to seeing how you know the goods are being produced and how the merchant themselves right the history the pride that they take in selling these products so that builds i think uh, a sense of community and a greater sense of trust as well so i think we'll continue to explore down this path right of how you know we can bring up a greater kind of like disney aspect right of, of shopping how do we make it even more exciting how do we make it even more fun well Xinyi, thank you so much for uh, you know taking your time to explain to us what Pinduoduo has done um, in the past few years and especially just in the last few months and in response to COVID. And you've definitely at least converted me to be a Pinduoduo user. And I, of course, encourage our listeners to download the app and check it out as well because together we could have more savings and more fun. Now, before I let you go, can you recommend um, anything like a book, a movie or article which has inspired you recently? I don't have a particular article um, that I would point to, but I have just been doing a lot more reading, I think, just around kind of the Black Lives Matter movement in the US. And I think this is something that definitely it touches upon so many aspects of, you know, economy, history, politics, and it is a 
a huge thing to unpack. But I think in that process, it's also set me thinking about how I think institutions, right, um, and and the role of systems and structures and rules uh, in creating. Uh, perceptions, right, and how people relate to each other. So uh, it's a pretty heavy topic, not something very uh, lighthearted to end this chat on, but I think it is um, something that uh, I would highly recommend everyone to kind of, you know, at least get more educated about. A hundred percent. And that is something that I've uh, been doing recently as well, just to educate myself more on the movement and the um, history and everything. And how do our audience find you if they want to, you know, ask you more questions or just to learn more about Pinodo as well? Sure. So for me, I am on LinkedIn. I'm not terribly active on LinkedIn though, but if you do want to connect, just drop me a note and I will try my best to reach out to you. So my LinkedIn profile, you can find it. It's just xin-yi-lim. And for Pinduoduo? Oh, for Pinduoduo, we're on Twitter. So it's Pinduoduo, at Pinduoduo Inc. And we also have been publishing stories on Medium. We have a LinkedIn account as well. So if you just search Pinduoduo, you'll see the uh, official Pinduoduo account show up. And so all our articles, our stories uh, from Medium, we share it on uh, Twitter as well as LinkedIn. So pick, you know, whichever social media site you prefer. Or if you do uh, prefer to have everything, then just sign up for everything everywhere. <laughs> and you can also um, listen to more episodes of Analyze Asia on any podcast platform of your choice. We are also on Twitter as well as on Instagram, and you can find us by searching for our handle, Analyze Asia, and that is Analyze with an S. And again, thank you so much, Xinyi, for coming onto the show, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you, Carol. <laughs>